Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the September 2018 episode of the Women in Foreign Policy podcast. My name is Annika, and I'm one of your hosts for this monthly exploration of the brilliant work of, you guessed it, Women in Foreign Policy. Each month, we bring you conversations and thoughts around specific themes in the field, and this month, we're exploring authors in foreign policy. Instead of our typical episode exploring the voices of many women, today we're focusing in on one. And friends, it's a big one. We're thrilled to share a conversation between my co-host Ashley and Cynthia Enlow. Cynthia Enlow is a research professor in the Department of International Development, Community, and Environment, affiliations with Women's and Gender Studies and Political Science, all at Clark University in Massachusetts. She is a prolific author and thinker in foreign policy, penning 15 books. Yeah, that's 15 books. <laughs> if you haven't heard or read Cynthia, you're going to want to stick around. I truly could go on for ages, but that's enough for me. Without further ado, Cynthia Enlow. Hi, Ashley. My name is Cynthia Enlow. Um, I'm so glad to be talking with you. Um, I'm a professor at Clark University up here in Massachusetts. Um, I write and do lectures and teach um, the whole schmear, as they say. Um, and um, I work especially on uh, the gendering of militarism. That's probably the most consistent thing I've done over numbers of years. Um, but I also am really got a wider lens and look at how women and men and masculinities and femininities, those four aren't the same, we all know, um, how they shape uh, not only foreign policy, but how people in various countries experience foreign policy. Great. Um, so that's a really nice encapsulation of your like decades long career. And I'm, I'm sure you've been asked to do it so many times you've kind of perfected that pitch, but um... oh, never because <laughs> no, you're always changing your idea of what you're doing, you know? Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, so this, this month's theme is about sort of authors and the variety of kinds of ways that people work in foreign policy and especially in publishing in foreign policy. So we wanted to ask some sort of, process-centric questions, as well as some broader theoretical questions. Um, so to begin with, you know, what is, what is writing like for you? What is your, what does your writing process look like? Either like getting the idea to start a book and like getting that rolling or, or once you're writing a book, what does writing a book look like for you? Well, it's funny. I was just thinking about that because I'm just about to do a talk in Britain, um, actually in Wales. Um, and I usually speak only from notes. Um, if you've ever seen on YouTube my sort of way I do things, I don't like to read lectures. I like to stand up and engage with the audience, so I just have a few scattered notes. I've thought about it a lot, but I try not to read it. But this talk that I have to do in November uh, in Wales, actually they asked uh, if I would both create a article that they could print and give the talk, they probably presume it'll be the same thing, but I never, I just never read. I don't like that kind of interaction with the audience. So 
I now am starting to write what will be the written version of this talk. Um, and it's really funny that you should ask that because I was just thinking about it. And I was just thinking, I've gotten at this point, um, I've been writing for a while, you know, and then keep changing. I love openings. I'm really, I'm interested in other people's openings. I love people who can write a good first sentence, a good first paragraph, short paragraph. I always think the first paragraph should be really short. Sometimes for me, it's one word. Sometimes it's one sentence. Occasionally it's two sentences. And so for this, I've just gotten my opening. And when I've got my opening, it doesn't mean I've got the whole article worked out in my head because you never know where you're going to go. You really don't. Um, but I have a tone. I have a, I know what I want the, the reader in this case to immediately be surprised at. So I'll just give you a hint because it's that Agatha Christie as a young 22 year old worked as a world war one nurse not on the front lines, so to speak, not over in France, but in her hometown in southern England. And, well, this sounds, well, it's so ghastly, but she, her, one of her first jobs was to take amputated legs and arms from British soldiers who'd been operated on upstairs down to the hospital furnace to put them in the furnace. Well, when you think about, well, it's just ghastly, right? When you think about Agatha Christie, you never think ghastly. You think clever. You think entertaining. Um, you think holds your interest and you're a, you know, you never figure out who did it until the end because she's so clever. But you don't think of her personally. And a lot of people only know the photograph of her in her older middle age, where she looks quite dowdy, really. Um, so, and that's true of a lot of women. A lot of famous women, we only have their photographs. Just think of the photographs you've ever seen of Susan B. Anthony, the suffragist. You only see photographs of people in their older years and never really imagine, well, what were the experiences they had of war, for instance, um, of occupation, of in their young years? What did they look like when they were engaging in those early experiences? And how did that affect their later outlook on life? So anyway, so the, for me, the opening is because it, it entertains me. <laughs> I mean, I really... You know, you don't want to write something that is boring to you. I mean, if it's not interesting to you. And so this surprised me. I I knew a bit about Agatha Christie. I'm actually pretty interested in her. But um, but I never I thought she only learned about poisons because that's a, that's something that runs through all her mysteries. And people who really study her work um, say it's because she was a pharmacist assistant in World War One. Well, she was, but that was her second job. Her first job was working with these really gruesome um, surgical operations 
on soldiers coming back from the front. So the second thing uh, about writing, I, I think about writing a lot, by the way. I think because I'm a teacher. So, and you all, and probably all your listeners, you can remember when you were a student and which things that you were assigned to read held your interest. And I think they have to look good on the page. A lot of very experienced readers um, and comfortable readers, readers reading in their own first language, readers who've learned to read early on. A lot of people are don't have the chance to learn how to read until they're teenagers or even adults. Um, but people who've had a long experience of reading and who are comfortable in the language of the author, they can take on long paragraphs. They look at the page and they see dense writing all down the page and they can hold on to it, right, all the way through. But that's not true of most readers, and probably including most of us. So I know it sounds weird, but I think of white space. I, I, I like readers to be able to pause, to be able to read a three-sentence paragraph and stop and think, huh, do I agree with that? Hmm, is that where this is going? So I do think about white space. I, I think my paragraphs, I've looked from my earlier work to my current work, and I think my paragraphs have gotten shorter. Um, and I think it's partly because we are now, all of us, not just quote unquote young people. I hate that kind of condescension. But I think all of us, we're on our smartphones all the time. We're on texts all the time. People really, when people read a lot, but they don't read long Jane Austen paragraphs as much. And so I don't think, I don't think it's dumbing down. I think it's make sure you don't stuff, you, I, we, don't stuff, don't even stuff two thoughts in the same paragraph. Make sure that you don't hide your second thought in the midst of having just introduced your first thought. Every distinct thought, distinct thought deserves its own paragraph because when you read, you breathe, or you should. Right? So I think about all these things. And I definitely think about the last paragraph. One of the things I really try to avoid is a last paragraph that's ho-hum or that is, has lost all its energy. And that's oftentimes what last paragraphs are like. They are, I've run out of steam. I want to go out for a cappuccino. Oh, my God, I've got to say something at the end. Okay. And it's kind of, sort of a wrapping up. But the wrapping up is oftentimes done in a way that is listless, is doesn't have any edge to it. Whereas I want a last paragraph that has energy and pushes me and hopefully anybody who happens to read my stuff forward. 
either because it's got a puzzle at the end, it's got a challenge at the end, it's got a risk at the end, something that says, okay, you've just finished this bit of reading, this bit of writing. Now what? So every part, I think, has to have its own particular energy and one's always got to think of diverse readers and not think that oneself is the model of the reader. I think that's, yeah, that's really important. And that's something that we've been trying to, to focus on as we've been building this podcast, because we've only actually been producing a podcast for a few months now. And something we, we really took to heart when we started was, you know, not everyone who's listening is, is like us. Um, so it's really heartening to hear you say that in terms of, of your writing as well. Yeah, um, I think readers, writing is in conversation with diverse readers. And you won't be able, I'm always surprised at who ends up reading some of my stuff. So you can't imagine everybody, but you can certainly imagine more than two people. Different kinds of people who some of them are reading it on the metro, some of it are reading it on the tube, some are reading it um, as they're looking at a thousand other things or multitasking. All right. And so it and some are reading it in their third language. So as you talk about your writing process and as you talked about sort of the way you you think about the page. Is there anyone that you that you read or that you have looked to and you said like, oh, that's someone who I want to emulate or like that's someone who I can see an influence on my own writing through their writing? Do you have anyone like that? I have a lot of different kinds of writers I read. I'm a New York Times. Well, one might say addict. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, longtime reader, but it's a little more intense than that. I'm I'm a I'm a reader of The New York Times. All sections, the art section, the science section, although I should read the science section more closely than I do, but I try. Um, I read the sports section. I read the opinions and I read, I especially read the news um, uh, articles. And I always look at, at the reporter's name. I always try to, um, if it's Maggie Haberman, for, who covers the White House for the New York Times, I know I'm reading Maggie Haberman. If it's Eric Schmidt, who covers the Defense Department and has been covering the Defense Department for probably 30 years, um, I know I'm reading Eric Schmidt. I try to realize I'm reading an actual journalist. Um, so I, I read really good journalism. I What I don't like is journalism that is all, I don't like flippancy. I mean, I'm not a dour person, but I don't like people that are just too clever for words or who for who take for granted that the reader of the news article already knows what you're writing about. So I, I read I read The New Yorker. I read I've read The New Yorker since I was in high school. And this was thanks to my parents who subscribed. My parents subscribed to this was the golden era of magazines. My parents, I sometimes try to list all the magazines my parents subscribed to and when they which day of the week they'd come and so I mean I had to be a little you know I had to be a teenager before I could really read the New Yorker um, but the New Yorker has very very good writers 
um, Rebecca Mead, um, who covers culture, um, David Remnick, who um, covers particularly Russian affairs and is now the editor in chief. I read, but I read a lot of New Yorker writers, and I think I think as a group, probably the New York Times writers and the New Yorker writers, and they're quite different, and their style is different, um, have probably over time influenced me the most. I also read a lot of books. I read a lot of books by people for whom it's their first book, people writing for other academics. I'm also a reviewer, so... I read a lot of things in draft form um, and try to encourage writers who don't already do it to include real people's voices, which are totally missing mainly in foreign policy articles. Um, you would never know that there were humans on the planet, um, you know. And um, so I read a lot of things in, in other people's drafts and try to encourage them to not only think better about the research they're doing, if they have to, um, but also write better. I think, for instance, recently, I can give you an example. I just read What the Eyes Don't See. It's by the fabulous um, researcher and pediatrician in Flint, Michigan, who first collected the very systematic scientific public health data on lead in the Flint, Michigan city water due to the negligence, really criminal negligence of public officials uh, locally and at the state level. And her name is Mona uh, Hanna, H-A-N-N-A hyphen Atishi. Hanna Atishi is her family name. And her book is so good because it's about, oh, actually, I want everyone to read this book, What the Eyes Can't See. And it's about, it's writing about the scientific method for being publicly responsible and politically persuasive. How do you do science so that people who do not want to hear you they do not want to hear that the Flint water has been so neglected in its management that it is poisoning Flint children, mainly African-American children, with high levels of lead. How do you do scientific research so that the people who don't want to hear you will have to be persuaded? And the people like mostly African-American families in Flint, who knew something was wrong with the water, will understand your research and be confirmed and validated where before they were dismissed as hysterical. And her writing is so good. It's because it she mixes her Iraqi family's own story of courage and their own story of making it in different cultures with her own experience of being a public health scientist come pediatrician. It's it, What the Eyes Can't See by Mona Hanna Atishi. If I could require, you know, you know how cities read books now? That's the one, you know, I would suggest 
That straight writing. Everything about that sounds so necessary right now. Like, especially since we live in this atmosphere where the very idea of a fact is something that we can kind of put up for debate. The, yes. The sort of instruction in the way to make your facts more concretely understandable is crucial. Like, okay, I'm going to go like get that book this afternoon. <laughs> Actually, what the eyes can't see. And it has enormous Im um, uh, implications for people trying to do foreign policy, journalism, foreign policy, advocacy, and foreign policy making. Because it's about credibility. It's about persuasion. It's about responsibility. It's about accountability. So if you think of the debates over have, has the Assad regime in uh, Syria, have they used chemical weapons? And think about who, dis well, the Russian government especially, who dismisses that? And how do you, how do, you do research on the ground to back up what seems at least at first glance as credible evidence. How do you back up that credible evidence? The other foreign policy scene right now where there is question about, is that true? Is that not true? Is the Saudi use of American weapons to bomb civilians in Yemen? And so it has foreign policy implications also for the whole debate over the foreign policy of attacking, meaning challenging, rolling back climate change. So it's a book for people involved in foreign policy as well, I think. No, I, I think you're completely right when you say that. I think that it might behoove us in, in the more social sciences to put a little more emphasis on, on that kind of rigor and that kind of sort of outward facing, I like, I'm not going to just share this paper with my fellow academics, but I, if I want an impactful research agenda, then I need to be able to share it convincingly with anyone on the street. And I think that's something that we, you know, academia gets accused of being an ivory tower a lot. And I, I think that probably contributes to it quite a bit. Well, you think how, how important it was in the um, question over did the Saddam Hussein regime have nuclear weapons or not? And how the Swedish-led inspection team's findings were dismissed. So this, and again, in the environmental area of foreign policy, which is everywhere, um, it's really crucial. And it's not a matter of hammering home a, it's a, an argument. It's about collecting data. And one of the things that, Mona Hanna-Atishi shows is you've got to do it right, which means you have to work collaboratively. You've got to take the step that's going to take you another four days, and you don't want to take the four days because you feel so urgent. Um, so it's also not about patience in the sense of a relaxed attitude towards the collection of credible information. It's um, urgent patience. Impatient patience. That's, yeah, I, I really like the idea that we have to distinguish between sort of 
how we're sitting and waiting and why we're sitting and waiting. Um, so something that I, this is kind of maybe a personal question, but it's something that I think a lot of, especially women will struggle with when they're sitting down to write a book is how, how do you know that your voice is valuable? How do you know that what you have to contribute is something, is something that's going to add to the canon? And how do you sort of maybe argue back against all the voices in your head of people telling you that, you know, what you've got to say is nothing everyone else hasn't said a hundred times already? Well, I think a couple of things, actually. I think the first thing is humility is always good. So don't ever give up humility. But you're trying to say something not because you or I are so wise, but what we have found is so valuable, which is a really different sense of I've got to write this because hearing what women who work as domestic workers in Jordan, how they're experiencing migration, how they're experiencing the loss of their passports, which are held by their employers um, under Jordanian law, um, because that's so important. And that's really, it's a different way to approach being a writer. You don't have to constantly say to yourself, I know I'm important. I know my voice is um, an important voice. I know that I'm smarter than other people. That really can paralyze you. And you might be smarter than most people, by the way. But, but the way to get into writing an op-ed piece, a letter to the newspaper, um, giving a podcast, writing a blog, or writing something longer, a book, is to think, people have to know this. They have to know what it was like being a Bangladeshi garment worker when the uh, Raza Plaza collapsed. They have to know that. And that's not me saying, I'm so wise I have to have confidence in my wisdom. That's saying, who else is listening to these Bangladeshi women garment workers? I have to make their voices heard. And that's a very different fuel, if you will, to writing. It's not, I have something important to say. I have found something that people need to know. And so... Kind of following on from that, then, once you're in a phase where you're showing your draft to someone, maybe you show it to your editor or a friend or what have you, how do you then determine what is valid criticism and constructive criticism and what is just, I would have done this differently or even maybe criticism in bad faith? Well, there's always that, um, right? Um, but let's assume that most, well, no, we won't always assume that, but um, sometimes the person you give the draft to just doesn't get it. Now, this will be this is particularly disheartening. If it's a friend, you can say, "Did I not make that clear? That isn't why I'm writing this book. That's not what I want readers to get." And then your good friend will say, "Oh gosh, you know, you haven't really made that clear." You led me down a path where I started 
assuming this book was about X. I had no idea this book was really about L, right? So that's a great conversation to have with a good friend reader. Um, with a lot of books especially, but also with articles, um, they the editor you first send it to sends it out to blind reviewers. I've done a lot of blind reviewing and I'm on several journals where we talk about the politics of blind reviewing. And we've tried really hard to get our own act in shape so that we write our reviews so they are encouraging. That doesn't mean you write a review saying this is the best article ever, let's publish it as is, but it's rather whatever response you have to the written material you've gotten, you give it in a way that the author um, doesn't lose heart. So there's a politics to being a good reviewer. And we, on a number of journals I'm on, especially feminist journals, we talk about the politics of being a fair, respectful, but also encouraging reviewer. But you will sometimes get back. You don't choose your reviewers. And editors sometimes are just, they're constantly looking for reviewers. I mean, I can't tell you how hard it is to be an editor and constantly look for reviewers. And sometimes the reviewer is just the wrong reviewer. Meaning the reviewer has never thought about this. The reviewer doesn't like ethnographies. The reviewer can't stand uh, the qualitative character of your writing. They really want a lot more quantitative whatever it is. And then when you see that, what you can do, you're going to then talk to your editor about it. And one of the things to think immediately is, didn't I make it clear? And so to take the criticism and realize, oh my God, I assumed that. I shouldn't have assumed that. I should have really spelled it out. Here's what I'm up to. Here's why my findings are credible, even though I'm using alternative methodology. Here's why they're reliable. Um, and I just have to be a lot more explicit than I ever realized I had to be. Or I have to be a lot more upfront about the pitfalls of doing the kind of work in the way I've done it. I've been in a refugee camp. I was always under surveillance when I did these interviews. That is really, really questionable, right? Because the person being interviewed is always aware that they're being watched. I've got, even though I found out some really interesting things, I've got to let the reader know this is a risk. Read this. You don't have to read it with a whole shaker of salt, but read it with at least a couple of grains of salt because I'm listening with grains of salt. So being honest being explicit, really taking seriously the criticisms when they just require you to be more upfront, I think is good. But don't be disheartened. Take them as, here's one of the things that I've done with students in class, and it seemed to help. When you're teaching, one of the most discouraging moments <laughs> is because you spend the hardest thing about being a teacher is to making comments on students' papers. I can't tell you, all of us who teach, 
say it's the most exhausting but one of the most discouraging moments is you hand back the papers with all your efforts in the margins of trying to be useful and helpful and you see the student who could be of any age by the way um, you see the person that has received your comments kind of grimace fold the paper up and put it as deep in their knapsack as they possibly can so they will never ever have to look at your handwriting again and it's just painful for the person who's done the marginal writing. So here's what I started to do in class, and it made me a better commenter. I said, take out a piece of paper, put it the, in your own handwriting, put at the top of it, strategies for my future writing. And this is now for the student, this is going to be their own strategic reminders to themselves. The teacher will never see it. And in your own words, as a student, getting back, you sit there. I literally would close the classroom door, say everyone's going to sit here. And for 15 minutes, you're going to translate any comments I made, including be sure and keep doing this. This is great. Translate it into your own handwriting as your own strategic point by point to do list. And then you never have to look at my handwriting again. Then it's always just in the form of notes to self. Be sure and always cite this. Be sure and always do this. Be sure and follow up on this. Right. And you're only looking at your own notes to self, which is much less painful. So I guess kind of following on from that then, when you have your own notes to self, when you have that advice that you have transcribed from other people in your life, what does that look like for you? What are your like personal notes that you've taken over the, over the course of decades writing? Yes. Right. And decades of being reviewed, you know, is do not make sweeping statements. It's very tempting. It makes you sound like, you know, a wise person. Um, but Find a way to make more specific conclusions, say, or more specific analytical um, arguments that are specific and interesting without being sweeping. Sweeping generalizations, one, they're much harder for the reader or the hearer to act on. But secondly, they are really open to a critical reviewer saying, who can trust this person? I mean, this is clearly not true in Myanmar. It may be true in Sweden, but it's not true in Myanmar. Um, so it doesn't mean one can't make generalizations, but they've got to be very carefully specified in what they're saying. I think that's one of the most important things. The other thing is, be sure and triple check your sources. You triple check your sources not to pr provide yourself with armor. A lot of people think that footnotes and citations and sources are kind of a bulletproof armor. I'll armor myself with these and then nobody can discredit me. 
they aren't that you you are specific and careful about your sources so that the reader who becomes really interested in the poisoning of children in Flint can follow it up. So you do sources to energize your readers, not to protect yourself. Okay, I I really like thinking about it that way because I think especially if you grow up writing in academia, it's always you're sourcing so you're not plagiarizing. You're you're citing your sources so that you know it's not um, an academic ethics thing. But I think thinking of it as a way to like give your reader a tool to to develop the knowledge you're presenting is so much more useful in terms of not just motivating you to do it, but also like actually making it meaningful. And it keeps you connected with your readers, not just your reviewers. That's a really good point. Yeah. So kind of as a last question, I know that a lot of times if you spend a lot of time reading or if you spend a lot of time writing and you spend any time on the internet, you've seen all of these lists of writing advice. And I was wondering if you have any sort of any piece of advice that just really ticks you off and you just wish people would quit telling young writers or people just starting to write, like quit telling people that I hate that. Like, do you have any piece of advice like that? Oh gosh. I don't know. I, um, I mean, one of the most common things that are said are two common things are said and both of them really have, authentic weight, I think, but they have to be really heard carefully. The first is write what you know about. Well, that's really important, um, especially for fiction writers, right? Um, but it's also true that one has to kind of stretch oneself and write what you've learned about, but was new to you and still feels rather uncomfortable to you when you're writing about it. So, but that then is bring the reader along with you. And sometimes if you can give a first person confession of how uncomfortable this made you or how confusing it was because you had never been in a, um, remote village before you never really understood the politics of women and men's divisions of labor around an agricultural effort. Right. And so you're really uncomfortable and you're really confused. And so you've stretched yourself into an area you don't know about, but you're honest about how you made wrong assumptions and you how you had to learn to unmake those assumptions. And for readers, it brings them along too, because they don't think that the writer always knew this. And you, the reader, are just stupid, because didn't you know this about the growing of apricots in Afghanistan? Um, and so that's one thing about write what you know about. Write what you've learned about and give the reader a sense that you too are a learner. I think that's uh, very encouraging. The second thing is write in your own voice. Well, we most of us have several voices. And I think write in your own voice doesn't mean that you, the writer, or I, the writer, am the most important thing here. I'm not. I am not the most important person in something I write. 
I just am not. I hopefully am the carrier of information and insight that I have gained, but it's almost always from other people. I really am wary of this notion that to write authentically, one has to put oneself as the author in the center. It doesn't, I mean, you have to be candid where it's useful either in the notes or in the text, depending on the format. You can use the first person. That's fine. I think it's oftentimes really good. But the author, and certainly in the areas of foreign policy and foreign policy impact and foreign policy making and foreign policy um, revisions and errors, me as the writer, I am just not the most important person here. Yeah, I think that I think that writing, since it is so sort of solitary an activity, can often lead to forgetting exactly what kind of relationship you have with with the people who will be interacting with the writing. So I think decentering yourself is really crucial there. It's, it's really crucial. It doesn't mean that you never write in the first person. It doesn't mean that you don't spell out, again, either in the notes or the prefaces. Writing, reading prefaces of books are one of the most important things a writer can do, a, a would-be writer or an ongoing or new writer. Write, read people's prefaces. And first of all, look at all the people they thank, which means that writing, sitting at the computer or with the yellow notepad or whatever, may feel like only you are holding the pen or only your fingers are touching the keyboard. But in fact, look at all the people it took to write this. So I also wouldn't overdo the writer is the solitary hero. Well, thank you so much for your time. I have really enjoyed talking to you. Um, <laughs> you have just like so much advice and so much wisdom. I feel like it's just, it's fantastic. Thank you so much. It's just my old experience. Onward we go, right? Right. Right. Wow. What a conversation. It's me, Annika, again. I just want to say another huge thank you to Cynthia for sharing her time and talent with us. If you want more Cynthia, remember that she's written 15 books for you to dive into. We hope you enjoy. Women in Foreign Policy is on Twitter at Women in FP. If you're looking to connect with myself or Ashley, we're also both on Twitter at at Annika E-P, A-N-N-I-K-A-E-P, and at Ashley underscore E underscore Pratt, P-R-A-T-T. We would love to know what you think of the episodes. Are there women you'd like to suggest we do an interview with? We'd love to hear from you. Are you a woman working in foreign policy that thinks your job or research is really interesting? We probably do too. We'd love to speak to you about it, so please, please do reach out. Finally, if you like the work we're doing, please consider supporting us via PayPal at lmgoulet, L-M-G-O-U-L-E-T, or on Patreon at Women in Foreign Policy. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next month when we spend some time discussing U.S. politics with brilliant women in advance of the November election. See you next month. Bye! Bye!